But yeah, so thank you very much for coming. This is week five of Theology 101. We're going to be covering mankind. I know I wrote it in green, so you might not be able to read it, but mankind is what we are covering. Um, I want to encourage some conversation as we're going, so if I ask questions and, like, don't talk afterwards, that's where there's interactive bits. Feel free to chime in. Uh, I'm not the type of person to, like, make you put up your hand, but obviously if people are all talking at once, it doesn't work for anyone. So use respect with each other. You guys are all basically adults or are adults, so I'm sure you guys will be able to figure it out. I'll moderate if need be. But, uh, yeah, we'll have a little bit of conversation. And we want to cover, there's kind of three main things that Andrew asked me to cover with this, uh, and that is the creation of mankind, uh, what it means to be male and female, and then what is the nature of man. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, those are like the three main things that we're going to be covering, uh, but we're going to be going through in more detail, obviously, over each and every single one of those topics. Uh, so I'm going to start by reading a little bit of scripture here, uh, and that's how we will dive in. So starting in Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 26 through to 27. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, as I'm sure most of you guys here know, that's probably like one of the most well-known Bible verses, at least among the Christian community, uh, because it is quoted all the time when we're talking about mankind. It's quoted all the time when we're talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, it is a go-to. So I figured it was a good place to start because we're all familiar with it. We're not in unfamiliar un ground or anything like that. Uh, but we want to actually discuss what that means. So we're going to, as... After we read those two verses, 28 obviously follows, and it fleshes out that concept a little bit. So I'm going to just read verse 28, and then we're going to hop into uh, some of the details about what this actually means and what it looks like. So verse 28, after those two, says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, a couple of main points with this is that uh, God is the creator of man. Uh, it's a very common thing in our world right now, at least in North America, where evolution is a worldview that is carried by a lot of people, where humanity came into existence through basically chance, uh, to sum it up really, really tightly. Uh, and scripture disagrees with that, and, and theology, to be correct theologically, you would have to disagree with the fact that humans... If, if, sorry, let me reword that. To be theologically correct, you have to agree with the fact that God created humans. Uh, we see that within the first few words, really, of the entire uh, Bible. Uh, and so it makes it quite obvious. God is the one who initiates the creation of mankind. God is the one who we are made in the image of. We're not made in the image of angels. We're not made in the image of any other living being, any other created being. We are made in the image of God. Yahweh, the one true God. 
So the reason that this verse and this thing that we're talking about right now is so important is because it lays the foundation, even though it's only a few verses, it lays the foundation for the rest of our understanding about what humanity is and what our role is. If we can't understand or if we haven't come to terms with the fact that God created us, it, it destroys the capability to understand why we were created in the first place. If we don't believe that we have a creator, there is no purpose behind life. Uh, so it's really important to have that uh, settled in on. So, in case Genesis chapter 1 here isn't enough proof, there is other scripture that actually refers to God creating man. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you're not super familiar with them, uh, I just wanted to give a little tip that I give quite often. There is a concordance in the front of your Bible that has all of the uh, books of the Bible in the order in which you'll find them with their page numbers. So as we're flipping through scripture, if you're not sure where the book of the Bible is, feel free to check that and you'll get the page number for the first page of that, of that book and you'll have an easier time finding it. So we're going to turn to Job chapter 38 to start. Uh, I have Job chapter 38 to chapter 42 marked down. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of that. Otherwise, we'd be here uh, for a very long time if that's how we were going to navigate this. Um, but for those of you who don't know, uh, we talked about the story a little bit one of, uh, one of the other weeks, and Job is being tested, being, uh, God is allowing the Satan to come and wreak havoc in his life to like sum it up really closely. And Job has come to the point where he's crying out to God and God answers him, uh, which is really cool and it's also really terrifying. But in essence, to paraphrase, um, this is my paraphrase. God says in these chapters, like, you know, okay, Job, Job, you have these questions. Pull up your big boy pants. Let's go for a trip. I'm going to show you. And he shows all of the things that God has created and all of the things that he is in control of and all the things that are held in his hand. Uh, and within that is all of creation, right? The intricacies of creation. God declares it here very obviously in scripture that he is the creator of everything, humanity included. Another passage that would show this is Psalm chapter 8 verses 3 to 5. So if you are not familiar with where Psalm is, it is right near the middle of your Bible. It's actually probably only a few pages over from Job where you're at right now if you made it there. Psalm chapter 8 verses 3 to 5. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, it basically is quoting verbatim Genesis chapter 1, where we were reading earlier, stating that God is the, the creator. Matthew 19, uh, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 are also a couple of verses that show this. But for the sake of time, those are just, if you're taking notes, you can note those down. Um, and if we have time, we can look at them a little bit later. Uh, so with this, it's really important to understand mankind was not an accident. I know I've said that already, but it, it is a foundational belief within the Christian faith that mankind is not just here by chance. God planned for us to be here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about God's foreknowledge before the foundation of the world even, uh, that he had uh, chosen a people to be his, um, and that he has a plan for our salvation. Uh, 
So God created man for a purpose, obviously. God doesn't just allow things to go willy-nilly within his creation. There's reason. There's rhyme to his reason. And so we wanted to look at that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 is where we'll turn next for this. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, so if you flip there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. So in the same or in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I know it's one verse, but I think that this is a really good entry point for a view on what humanity was created to do. Yes, we were made in the image of God. Yes, we were made to have dominion over the world. But what does doing that well do? It brings glory to God. Uh, we often as humans twist that and like to bring glory to ourselves on how we do well and make sure that others see what we're doing. But God created us so that people would turn and look at him, not the other way around, not so that we would be given glory, but so that we would be constantly giving him glory. Or so that even when people interact with us, they would then in turn give God glory instead of looking to us. Another good verse to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So if you'll turn there, that is a little bit further in the New Testament. Um, it says, So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. These simple mundane tasks that, let's be honest, most of us have probably hit some kind of stage in our life where we're like, really, we have to eat another meal? We're blessed in North America. But those simple mundane tasks are still things that we can do to bring glory to God. Our very existence here was designed from the get-go to bring glory to God. Uh, so in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's uh, two chapters there that talk about the creation of man. Uh, we were created to bring glory to God, and we were created to image him. So those are the two main points underneath, uh, underneath what you have there for being made in God's image. Is yes, we were made in his image, but that that should bring glory to him. So the question then comes up is what practically does it mean to image God? What, what does that even mean, right? It's a, it's a single word that's used to describe something that we apparently do or are capable of, and yet it's also a term that gets thrown around by a lot of Christians and never explained or fleshed out, or at least not very often. So that's what I want to attempt to do for you guys now is ex explain or try and flesh out what that means to actually image him. Uh, so Christians and, and theologians and pastors alike have been talking about this for a long, long time. Uh, some of you may have heard sermons about what it means to image God. Some of you may have heard uh, little TED Talk type things or quick little TikTok type videos about what it is to image God. Uh, but what it actually is, in the ancient Hebrew language, there's... Uh, four different Hebrew words that can be translated as image. We're only going to focus on a few of them for today, uh, but the first one would be salem. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you would spell that so that it would look proper in English because it's a Hebrew word. Uh, but what that word is, it's derived from the parent root sal, which is the meaning, uh, which means shadow. Uh, and so it's not a shadow as in like you're following in the footsteps. It's a shadow as in like it, if you were someone else looking at someone else's shadow, you would see the outline of who they are. You wouldn't see them themselves, but you would see an outline, a, a caricature in, in a sense of who they are. Um, the other word, uh, another word, sorry, is demut. Uh, and the parent root is dem, which is blood. So it, it describes like your, your descendants, right? Uh, an offspring of yours. And we see that in, used in the Old Testament. 
Um, and then the other one is uh, pesel. And this word comes from the root pesel, which is, it means to carve. Um, so you can imagine, if you know your Bible, you can imagine where that goes, where the Israelites are carving idols out of uh, different materials to try and make gods for themselves, make images of gods. Um, and so those are kind of the root words. And so what does that actually mean? I think any time we try to put into words what it means to image God, it will fall short because we are imaging a God who is so great. But one of the best examples that is given is like your offspring here on earth. Physical examples, as I, I, I want to make sure I say it again, they fall short. It's not perfect. But one of the best examples is that. And the reason that I say that is just on a practical scale, if you have children already, think of how many times as they were growing up, uh, even Aaron and, and I talk about Gemma, our daughter, who's nine months old, almost 10 months old, and the amount of things that we look at her do and we're like, oh man, is that like you or is that like me? Um, and so this is the idea that carries over for us as we're created in the image of God, is as we are living out our life, the attributes that we've talked about in the first two weeks, uh, some of them obviously we don't carry because we are not uh, omnipotent, we are not all-knowing, all those types of things, but we are meant to show love and mercy and grace and justice. And, and to do those things uh, is actually how you rule well, how you have dominion well. Jesus modeled this perfectly while he was here. Um, Jesus was the perfect image of God in human flesh. So that's what the goal is as humans. That's what we were designed to do, is to image those attributes here on earth and interact with other humans and all of creation on behalf of God as his image bearers, kind of like priests in essence. Um, and so this... Uh, it's quite interesting because God has given us this role. He's created us in his image. And he specifically commands us not to make other images of any gods or anything. And it's because God has already done that in us. There's no need for it because we already image him here. There's no sense in making dead idols to other gods. For one, they are false gods. For two, they, there is no point because we are already meant, like Matthew talked about, we are meant to be looked at by other humans and bring glory to God. We are meant to turn each other to him. So, to image something, like I said, it's a, a simple word to describe a complex happening. Uh, and so we want to do that well, but we fall short. The human condition makes it so that we fall incredibly short of that. And you can see, we've talked about that a little bit already, about how sin twists these things. Um, so what are some ways, uh, some of the attributes of God that we've talked about, love, jealousy, wrath, those types of things that we talked about the other week, if you have your notes, what are some of those things that you guys have seen twisted by sin that God carries and we're made in his image and we do not do well? Yeah. Yeah. We do not love well at all. There may be moments where we do, um, but we overall don't do it well. How else have you seen the image of God twisted? Not super talkative tonight. Maybe like his grace, and then just like people like just do 
all this stuff and say, oh, what is grace? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the ways we twist grace as well is to, you know, we might show someone grace, but secretly in the back of our mind be holding that we hope they return a favor, right? Without extending that to them and allowing it to actually be grace and allowing it to rest there as a gift, we expect something in return often, even if it might be in the back of our minds. So yeah, we, we twist it. Even if, we're un, if we don't want to necessarily talk about it, we twist it all the time. Um, and so... I think as followers of Christ, uh, I don't want to just leave us where like, I say that we twist it. Paul talks uh, a lot about how as Christians we are actually restored to this image-bearing status and where we are called to do that well. It's no longer just left there as like, let's just leave it, we suck at this, let's leave it there. Uh, and so one of the verses uh, where he talks about this would be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Um, be imitators of God, follow the example of Christ in essence, right? We are to imitate God. You can probably hear the, the same root word within that word. Um, Romans 12, 2, uh, if you flip to it, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are to not, we are not to look like everybody in this world. We're supposed to look and be conformed into the image, or transformed into the image of God. So being Christians is that journey in which we have been a fallen creature, a fallen by nature children of wrath, and we are being slowly transformed more and more into the image of God, where we would be like in Eden again, where we represent him well, where we are true ambassadors of God and bear his image well, uh, through our mercy, through our grace, through our justice, and through our interactions with all of creation, whether it be another human or the rest of creation. And so... It leads us to our next point, uh, which is male and female, being created male and female. Uh, part of imaging God, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, is that we are created male and female. Uh, so if you read it and pay attention to the wording in that, kind of like that poem in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's all included in one thought. That's not a disconnected series of thoughts. That's not like a, a, a subtext or another note. It is in one thought. Male and female together image God. So this is a topic that is getting more and more sensitive as our culture goes on. Um, within the church, uh, to some extent, it's also getting more and more sensitive. Uh, we've even seen that within our church. Uh, but we are very sensitive about this issue about gender and sexuality. But this is obviously something that God has done by design, making us male and female. And so it's important to have a good understanding of why he would do that and, and what it means to actually be male and female. So a couple of main points is, yes, God did create two genders. That is where it starts. That is where it ends. Scripture is very clear on that within here in Genesis chapter 1. But there is a plethora of other examples about there being only two genders, including in Ephesians, Corinthians, so on and so forth. Paul refers back to the Old Testament view of gender and sexuality all the time when he's teaching on these things. It's not a disconnected series of ideas. It's all uh, referring back to God's original design. And the other thing is, is that God has created us with different roles. 
Uh, and that's a word that I know sets up for a lot of tension within the church, especially, and within culture. Uh, we really don't like those words, but it becomes really clear as you read scripture that it is something by God's design that that has happened. So we want to flesh that out a little bit. I don't want to just leave that there and let you guys try and ponder it and, and wonder about that. Um, and so I think Genesis is actually a really good place to start again. Believe it or not, the beginning is a good place to start when you're talking about these things. Um, so if you haven't guessed, we're going to be spending a lot of time with Genesis chapter 1 and 2 today. Um, and so we see that God created us male and female in Genesis chapter 1. And it's kind of like this 30,000 foot view of this creation event happening, right? Where, where we're seeing the passage of time through creation and we come up to the creation of man and it, it shows us from far away what God is doing in essence, right? If I can use a word picture for that. And Genesis chapter, do, chapter 2, what it does is it zooms in on this picture. And so we get to see a more personal approach to this. And I think Genesis chapter 2 is where we get some more ideas and it starts to flesh out this idea of what it actually means. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start uh, in... I thought I had it written down, but apparently I do not. Uh, we are going to start in ch uh, chapter 2, verse 7. So if you're there, it should be pretty easy to find should be basically the second page of your Bible. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Uh, Delium, Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And, to name, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So there we see that picture, Genesis chapter 1, where we're made to have dominion over creation to work and to keep it, right? It's not a passive thing that God has created us to do. Uh, it is an active work. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she, because she was taken out of man. And then there's kind of a side note in verse 24 uh, where the author of Genesis is, is kind of 
coming in kind of as a breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, where he, it's like a narrator little point where he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So I know that's a lot of reading, but what do we see happen when God first creates man? This part here can be interactive, so we'll, we'll try and build a bit of a discussion so that we can build the picture together and it's not just me telling you what happened. What happens when God creates man? Kind of a step-by-step. -step. Open book text, test. You can look at your Bibles. Puts him in a garden. Yeah, he puts him in a garden. What else? He gives him dominion. Yeah, he gives him dominion. What does he start doing with that? What's his interaction with the rest of creation? What's the task that he is given? Naming. Yeah, he's naming them. Does he find somebody or something suitable to be a companion or to help him with the task? No. All right, so this is where we're going to start flipping back and forth a little bit. In Genesis chapter 1, what was the task that God gave humanity? Uh, right after verse 27, what is the blessing that God gives them? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. Now, as you guys can tell, I am not a scientist, but is man able to be fruitful and multiply alone? No. There needs to be, practically speaking, there needs to be somebody to step into a role to help man do that well, right? To image God well and to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill this blessing that God has given, this command that God has given, he needs to have help with that. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, the other thing is, is as, as Adam is looking at the rest of creation, is there an equal? Is there somebody that he looks at and, and finds any kind of relationship with or any kind of ability to forward the task of having dominion well over the world with? No. So what does God do? God creates woman out of man. And Adam cries out, this at last is bone of my bones, right? Like he's actually excited about this. We've seen him name all the animals around him, but now he's excited. And so I hope that you guys were paying attention to how I was structuring those questions because it was intentional. Um, I think often when we read this part of scripture, uh, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, does anyone have a translation other than the ESV here by chance? Maybe I'll go this route to talk about this. What translation do you have? If you don't mind reading uh, the section where he says that he will make a helper for him. That will be uh, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable. So ESV says helper fit. Uh, NIV, a helper suitable. Does anyone else have any other different translations? Yeah, the new living. Okay. A helper who is just right, yep. Does anyone else have any different translations by chance? Any King James? I can look it up. Yeah, go for it. It is not, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him... Is that right? Unhelp, yep. I will make him an un, unhelp meet. 
for him. Yeah. Not help made, help meet. And help meet. A-N, help meet. Anybody else have any other translations that they're willing to read out loud? Okay. So if you're not in the habit, this is something that I've learned from a different scholar. This isn't my own thoughts. Um, if you're not in the habit of reading other translations of scripture, it's actually a really good practice to do because an English translation, although the translations that we have, most of them are really, really good, translators still use certain words to, to get their points across in the way that they deem, or deem best fit. But that doesn't mean that a different team of translator, translators won't think a different word fits better. The reason I'm bringing this up to you is that as we're reading, all of these have similar idea, but they're using slightly different words. And that should be something that should clue us into that there's maybe something here that we should look into. Um, because there's obviously debate within the Christian uh, scholars teams behind uh, our translations as to how to translate this well. And so what I want to do is I want to ask what we should do in a situation, sorry, not what just I want to do, but what we should do is ask a question Man is alone, right? We see that within Genesis chapter 2. And it is not good for him to be alone. If we look back in creation, what is something that God deems all of creation as he goes throughout all seven days? What does he do as he sits back and looks at creation? What does he say it is? It's good. It is good. It is very good, right? Even at the end of it, it is very good. This is the first thing in his creation that God looks at and says, it is not good. That's an interesting point, because we look at creation already through Genesis chapter 1, and we look at chapter 2, and it's been good up until this point. But something about man being alone is not good. It's not described as evil in our translations, and in, in the uh, ancient Hebrew, the, word that would be, the wording that is used is that it is not tov, meaning it is not good. It's not, uh, it is not able to fulfill the task in which it has been designed for. Um, and so what does God do in this instance where we, it is not good that man, who has already created good and can image bear for, is an image bearer for God already to some extent as the one, what does he do? Yeah, he makes a helper. He makes a helper suitable and help meet, something like that. Uh, the ancient Hebrew is an ezer kenegdo. Ezer would be the word for help or helper. Uh, and kenegdo would be what is translated often as suitable or fit. Uh, and so what I think the important thing here, and this is, this is uh, what I'm trying to do here is build a foundation for our understanding of male and female and, and who we are in God's eyes, is that female was sent by God as a helper for man. Man is unable to complete the task in which God has created him for without woman. And so within that, being made in the image of God, I think it's important to understand that regardless of how Scripture talks about the roles of men and women, is we are both made in the image of God. We're both seen as equals when it comes to created beings. There is no difference in that. The title of image bearer stands true for both male and female. All right? The fact that God created man first and the fact that God created women as a helper, I think, speaks to that we need each other. Um, if you're married, I'm sure you can probably relate to that feeling of like, I need my other half, right? Um, and so I think there's kind of a few things with this. Uh, I'm sorry if you're taking notes. I'm not really going in like a super good chronological order of thoughts here. Um, but one 
is that there is kind of this interesting idea that as a singular being, we are not able to image a triune God well. A God with multiple persons, but one God, we are not able to image well. And so God creates woman, and we hear even the note afterwards in verse 24 here of chapter 2, that marriage is something that a man and a woman come together to be one flesh, one in purpose, one in service to God. Imaging that, that many becoming one or many being one uh, with one purpose, just as God is the triune God, three persons who is one with one purpose, right? So there's that aspect. And then the other thing is, is I think just practically speaking, if we look in this room, how many of you would be able to point out differences between how men and women react to general things in life? I think just on a practical scale, it's pretty easy to see that men and women are quite different in how we react. That's not to say that there isn't some fluctuation within how men and women react. There are some men that react, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to word it so that we'd all be happy. But the idea that, you know, there are some men that don't enjoy, you know, monster trucks and trophy trucks. They'd rather do painting. But there are some women who enjoy drag racing and those types of things. But those things aren't what define us as male and female. What defines us as male and female is our roles and how we come together to further the kingdom of God. So, there is no difference in status and in rank when it comes, sorry, not rank. There's no difference in status before God. As image bearers, we carry that together. So, I just got to scroll down in my notes for a second. All right, so as a helper, I think sometimes in our culture, uh, not always up here, I think we ha haven't been influenced quite as much by culture as some other main areas, but often the term helper is looked at as something that is potentially derogatory. Um, and so I'm not necessarily concerned about that for our group here, but I do want to make sure that it's covered, is that the term helper is not meant to be seen as something that is derogatory or making a status of a, a less than when it comes to an imager. That status of helper is something that, again, I, I think it's best to look at it as that help is being sent from God. It is not something that is man seeking out in his best ways to find a helper because that didn't work for him. He went through all of creation and couldn't find a helper suitable for him. And so God had to bring that help to him to be able to fulfill the task. So helper is not a negative thing. Um, and so then the other thing that I want to talk about is the role. Um, Paul talks lots about the roles of men and women within the church. Uh, we see the roles of men and women in the Old Testament. We see that everywhere throughout scripture. Our culture would tell us that if the roles of men and women are not the exact same, that that means that we cannot be equal. And I would argue that that is not true. Throughout scripture, we see the story that men and women, like I said, our, our identity, if it rests in Christ, is that we are image bearers of God, that we are saved, that we are children of God. That makes us equal. There isn't anything that can destroy that. No matter which role you carry, no matter what job position you have, no matter what job title, male, female, that is not distorted at all by those things. As an image bearer of God, that is your status. So your, your experience in life does not dictate your value to God. The fact that you are created by him is what dictates that. And so role, I think, is something that we struggle to understand because of our own sinful nature. 
Um, we struggle to, to understand how that could be something that's good because we look at other people's roles with a jealousy. Male and female do this. I'm not just singling any one gender out. Male and female do this. Uh, we look at what someone else has and we say, I want that for myself. I, I, why can't I be in that position? Why can't I be in that role? And the other thing is, is that if, even if we look at Paul's description of the body of Christ when we're talking about spiritual gifts, is that we need all the spiritual gifts. We can't get the church to work the way God has designed the church to work if we don't have those things. And so that goes for roles as well. You need people who are administrators. We need people who are leaders. We need structure to what we have so that it works. God is not a God of chaos to allow things to run rampant and however we deem in our sinful selves that it should be. God is a God of order, and role is a part of something that can help us with that. And so I think if we start viewing our roles as something that God has gifted us with and God has given us, as talked about with the spiritual gifts and stuff, I think that will begin to help us understand that those roles are not something that is damaging or, or bad. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I want to pause there for a moment. I know I've been talking a lot. Uh, if you haven't heard me teach in a setting like this, that happens a lot. I start rambling because I get ideas flowing. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. General reactions, like do you guys think that you struggle with the idea of roles and, and being created equal but having differences in how we operate here on earth? Thoughts, opinions, questions? I find it interesting that uh, he created a woman with the rib of the man. He didn't have to do that. Yeah. He could have done it separately. So there's obviously something to that part of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree. I think um, even the fact that Adam recognizes it as that, like he's fallen into a deep sleep. I don't imagine Adam was just sitting there watching it happen so that he knew, but yet when he saw Eve, he knew that this was different, right? So yeah, I agree. I think there is something very different and personal even about being created out of man. Yeah, uh, you know, reading uh, uh, chapter 2, 23 and 24 as a whole there's a, a oneness yeah. uh, and so uh, <clears throat> male, female and, and that's where in, in a partnership in marriage the oneness if, if you can work together as a oneness uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing yeah, yeah. And that does not undermine the other person at all. Yeah. It's always as a complementarian in a part of partnership. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So what happens to someone who is single? Yeah, right? yeah. That's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I, I want to open the floor for a conversation. I'll, I'll answer if nobody does, but I'm just curious. What happens then if God has made us in his image, male and female, and it's not good for man to be alone? What happens to someone who's single then? Are there any thoughts on that? Any? look after me in like a manly role even though we're not one or anything like that 
it's like they're still like they reflect how a man would look after a woman. Like hmm. I just see the similar characteristics of just like being more caring or whatever it is, like whether they recognize it or not and like likewise like maybe I do something more that a woman would a role would do that's yeah. compared to what a guy would do. Yeah. And any relationship like if it's your friend at school and stuff, you just see some things. Yeah, those roles being played out in friendships. Yeah. Yeah. Why did God create man first though? That is a very good question. Um, I, not a cop-out answer, but the answer that I have for that is that it is by God's design that he did that. Um, I don't think that we're necessarily given the answer outside of that that is the structure that he deemed as good, that he deemed as a part of his plan. Um, he wasn't, it's not like when he created Eve as a helper, it's not like he was like, oh shoot, oh man, I totally forgot about that part. Oops, I should have done that, right? He wasn't surprised by it. It was purposeful. We know who God is and his character traits. So it's not like it was done by accident, right? Um, and so why? I, I think that... Um, two quick thoughts, if you're willing to take a couple of pennies worth of thoughts, is that I think uh, it is a valuable question, but I think at the same time it's a dangerous question to put a ton of weight on. Not that it shouldn't be asked, but that if, we're, if we tend to chase down roads like that, then... Um, if we put a ton of weight on those things, I think we start digging for stuff that isn't necessarily in scripture. The purposes of those things, I think, are played out in how God has created it, and we can trust him that that was good. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that it's not a good question. I think there's fairness to it. Um, but I think even just in how Adam operates when he's naming the creatures and starts showing that lead leadership role, for lack of a better term, I think that there's stuff... Yeah. So I, I think that those things play out, right? Like throughout scripture, we see why, but it's not necessarily something that's written as like uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 26. It's like, and man was created to do this. Because it's already, it's, it's kind of assumed with how the order has man been given. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Helper not to be seen as a derogatory thing, right? It's not a, a lesser than. Um, but at the same time, God has created men and women different, right? It's very obvious here. So I think that's a tension that, as Christians, it's, it can be hard to hold, especially with what culture tries to tell us. Um, but I think it is a, a tension that we see throughout Scripture that is important to understand if we want to image God well, right? So as men to be the, in the leadership role in relationships and whatnot. The other thing that I think is shown here, just as a general thing, is that this is the start of a very common theme of the many becoming one, uh, becoming the many. So men and women, man created first, women gathered, they become one flesh to be purposed for God's will. And then what happens when men and women become one? Offspring. They become many. They become fruitful and multiply. And so that image is recreated throughout Scripture with the Israelite nation, right? We have Abraham being picked out as one and become the many to become the nation of Israel, the one, to become the many, to go out, right? And then we see uh, that with the church as well. Jesus, the one, die so that the many can be saved, so that we can come together as the one, the church, with the one purpose to serve the will of God, to become the many, right? It, it's, 
there's many, many different layers. We don't have time for all the rabbit holes, but there's some of that in this as well, is it's the beginning of that pattern. It's not maybe the main focus, but it is a beginning of an archetype that we see throughout scripture. Back to the singleness thing, because I think that was a good, like, and then we got onto a different Yeah. Point. But I think it's a good question, because I think single people can still image God but I, I could see where you go, oh, it's male and female together. Well, if I'm single, but then you would have to, well, Jesus was single and he perfectly imaged the Father. Paul was single. Paul actually says, I wish you guys were all single like I was. Yeah. Like, you can be way more focused on the mission if you don't have a husband or a wife. Yeah. So I think, I don't even want to say that the, the ideal is man and woman. And then, okay, well, if you, if you have to be single, then like, woe is you, but you can still be like imaging God a little bit. Um, I think you brought it up even the idea of the church body being were the representation of Christ on earth, right? The body of Christ. Um, you can still be involved in ministry as a single person and be imaging well. Yeah. Right? So I think sometimes We've done that in like Christian circles where it's like singleness is seen as like a disease where it's like, oh, I just feel so bad. Or, Don't worry, someday God will like fulfill. It's like, no, God could be using you right now. And you might, yeah. like my sister got married when she was 34 or five. Yeah. And for her, it felt like she was 70 waiting to get married, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, in her mid-twenties, she's like, I'm not going to be depressed being like, I'm less than because I don't have a husband. I'm just going to serve God. And I'm going to, and if God one day decides to take away my singleness, great. And if not, great. Right? Yeah. So I think it's good to remember that, that um, the Bible doesn't paint singleness as like a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, it can, you can still uh, be involved, right, in the ministry of yeah. I think sometimes uh, verse 24 can be taken as like a, an ideal verse. As in like when we read that verse, it's like, okay, so man was created, female was created, the ideal is marriage. And I, I think that although, yes, scripture talks lots about how marriage is a, a metaphor for Christ and the church, right? Christ and the bride. Uh, I think at the same time, this is, it's, it's just that. It's a narrator narrator poking in and saying, hey, like, because of what has happened here, this is why a man does this. Um, but he's not saying that this is what a man now has to do, right? This is not now what a female has to do to image God. That's, that's a status that we have whether we are married or not. Um, and so I think uh, even within the church, you think of it, how many female and males we have here our interactions within each other, within the, or not within each other, with each other, within the body of Christ, is still meant to image God, even if we're not married, right? Um, and so I think the interactions between us as male and female still image God well. Marriage is just another depth to that imaging God that is good and is part of the thing that God has created to do that. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions before we keep moving? It's on my, my Bible for verse 18. In chapter 2 or 1? Uh, chapter 1. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, it specifically says, like, the, it says, for him or matching him is not the same as like him. Hmm. Wife is not to be just like a husband, but is to complement him. Like, 
So then, on, on a final note on that, um, when it comes to our status before God, and when it becomes, uh, when it comes to our, our image bearing, in Galatians three twenty eight, Paul talks about how there is no male or female in Christ, and so what Paul is not doing in this verse, I want to be clear, is he is not saying then that there is no gender. What he is saying is that that the the ideation of it, back in their culture, when when these letters were being written to the church, there was this hierarchy that was uh, incredibly twisted, um, and so they took those roles of leadership and and submission to the absolute extremes and and sinfully twisted those things. And so what Paul is saying is, uh, even in the context of what he's saying here, is he says that there is now no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or master, right? Like he's putting it within that context and that we are all image bearers of God. If you are saved by Christ, you are saved by Christ. There is no hierarchy with, like, uh, one of the ways I've heard it said is that there is no uneven ground at the foot of the cross, right? When it comes to our relationship with Christ, we all come at the same place as by nature children of wrath in need of Christ, uh, regardless of gender. The other thing that I would like to add with this is um, another uh, verse that's used often uh, is in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, even his body and, yeah, of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Uh, and so this is often used as uh, a verse that is pointed out to the the Hierarchy is too strong of a word for what I'm trying to communicate. To the structure within marriage uh, that is given through scripture of male, the man being the leader, the woman being the helper, or to submit to the husband. Um, but I think something that's important here is that uh, the rest of this chapter talks about fleeing sin, talk about fleeing uh, sexual immorality, impurity, anything like that. Um, but in this... Uh, and the rest of Ephesians here, and the rest of chapter 6 as well, Paul talks about all of us submitting to each other, the whole of the church submitting to each other. And so I think what Paul is, is talking about is this, this marriage dance, in essence, right? If wives are to submit to their husbands, um, uh, somebody drew a graph once, and it kind of helped me understand uh, with a mental image, instead of just being stuck with the words, is that if wives... Uh, we're on this side, and husbands, we're on this side. If wives are to submit to your husband, this is all to do with the, the role still. I'm not just going on a tangent. Um, wives, submit to your husband. So if we have that, I think we picture this often, is that you know if the male stays here, we're equals, that's great, but wives, submit to your husband. But then Paul goes on to say to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for us? He gave his life for us. And submitted so that we could stand in the presence of God as blameless in front of him. And so then what happens is because husbands are loving their wives, 
wives will then submit to their husbands because they're loving them well. And it's this dance where it's back and forth, where we love each other. And that's not to say that there isn't maybe a, a role for husbands to take as leaders to stand firm or to help guide the, the relationship or their family. But what it means is that it's this image where we, it's a, a dance back and forth to look for the will of God and to walk in the will of God, uh, not as a... Um, somebody walking a dog saying, come on, we're doing this. It's this idea of working together. It's a helper, right? A helper fit. So that means then that, that there should be a help that is being done, not just a service dog as you're going along. And I use strong language like that because I think that's the traps that oftentimes Christian culture can fall into. So that's how I help mentally picture it is that as wives submit, husbands are loving and then wives submit and so on and so forth. It's the back and forth. All right, how are we doing? It's been a lot. Any questions again before we move on? Any comments? Or even any concerns with what we've talked about? Of how you are. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you're the woman, that means you do the cooking and the cleaning, and you know, yeah. it doesn't say that. But I think the, the world kind of makes Christians think that that's what it says, but it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure where that comes from. Um, like, where the, the idea of like lists of tasks to do. Um, I know for Aaron and I in our marriage, I, I love doing the cooking. Like, I actually enjoy cooking more than she enjoys it. And so I, the, I actually love getting to serve her in that way, to make a meal for her that she enjoys, and then we can give to Gemma to have good nutrition. I love to serve her in that way. I love to love her in that way. And so to me, and, and maybe, like, I'm willing to, to be uh, challenged on it, because I think it's good to have our ideas challenged. I really do. Um, but I would struggle to see how it would be more like an image of God to sit rigidly in a structure that is laid out of no Aaron should do the cooking when I can love her in that way and I enjoy it and I can help her flourish and, and she can then have the ability to image God in other ways, right? I don't know. It's just a thought. All right. So, what we're going to move on to, we have half an hour left. We might finish a little bit early, but we'll see how long this conversation goes, uh, is the condition of man. Um, so, obviously, tonight already, we've talked a lot about brokenness and how that mars things that God has created as good. Um, so, as we know, the story goes, most of us probably know, but a, as a quick refresher, God creates everything. God creates a garden. God creates man, places him in that garden. There's a tree in that garden, the tree of life, and there's also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens from there? Most of us are probably familiar with it, but in case there isn't, or in case there's someone here who's not familiar with it, what happens with those trees? They eat from the bad one. They eat from the bad one. <laughs> yeah. Man doesn't 
Man does not lead well. Yes, absolutely. Any other thoughts or comments about that? Not specifically man not leading well necessarily, but I mean, you can comment on that for sure. But Correction, I should have said bad one. We're never told that the tree is bad. But just the command was, trust God, don't eat from it. Yeah. No. Yep. It's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. And the woman tricked the man for conniving ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, what happens from that point, though? What are we told happens in the rest of these pages? What does the world look like? Yeah, there's evil, sin. What is the result of sin? Death, shame, yeah. Chaos. It's like vandalism, and it's like a cancer. It spreads. And so, welcome to Theology 101. That is a condition in which we sit. Uh, we sit as, by nature, children of wrath, as Paul puts it. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to flesh out what that means. I, I think we can look around and we can probably all agree pretty easily, regardless of our outlook on life, that the world is a really messed up place with a lot of really messed up stuff. I mean, even in a room this size with this many people, we all probably have a variety of life experiences, but have all been probably hurt in similar ways or through similar actions. Um, and I'm not trying to like weigh people's... Um, sin or way people, what I'm trying to say is that we recognize that there's brokenness in this world across the table. There's no one in this room that has lived a perfect life. There's nobody in this room who has not been sinned against, right? And so God created all of creation to image or to bring glory to him, created mankind to image him well, and he gave him the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad or good and evil. Um, and mankind chose to go against God. They chose to go against what God had de deemed as wise to follow his command and eat of the tree of life and live and continue to prosper and have dominion well. And when they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is when sin entered the world. So now what I want to do is just take, again, a second to pause. What are some ways that you guys have seen sin in this world, just practically? Technically, there is wrong answers, but like it should be pretty easy to come up with examples. <laughs> I think uh, maybe the side about how our um, country wasn't bad, but it was still a sin that they were considered to not do. And I think we take a lot of the good things that are the things that we have in life, and you know, good relationships, good opportunities, things like that. And we mess them up because we're broken and we make a good thing bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. So yeah, we take good things and we mar them. Um, I think even in the narrative, and we're going to cover this more next week because sin is the topic for next week. Spoiler alert. Um, but we're going to talk about it more next week. But even we see that in chapter 3, the serpent didn't go and create some random thing for Adam and Eve to do. He took something that God had already told them, took something that God had already created, uh, and we're told that creation was good. It's not like it says, and all of creation except for this tree was good. That tree was bad, right? All of creation was good, but disobeying God is what is wrong. And disobeying God is what in turn hurt 
other humans, right? Eve is not just left alone in, in that. She brings it towards Adam. And then after Adam and Eve, we see the story of Cain and Abel and so on and so forth. And we see generation after generation affected by this decision then. Um, and so we live in this world where we are so marred by sin that we have a natural bent towards worshiping ourselves and idolizing ourselves instead of worshiping God. So, like I said, it's tough to cover the condition of man without covering at least some of sin. Um, but yeah, our condition is one of the curse. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12 uh, talks about this. It's basically what is happening here in, in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want, you can flip to Romans chapter 5. Uh, but if not, even if you're looking at chapter 3 and skimming over it or reading it as we talk about this, um, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. And as the leader in this relationship, as the one that God has appointed in that position, uh, Adam is the one who is counted as that sin is, is then passed down to us. Uh, and so some people would call this the, the sin nature. Uh, what are some other terms that people have heard it called that we carry then because of what Adam has done? Original sin is another one. I'm curious if there's any other terms that people have heard for that for this concept of being guilty of Adam's sin or now being stuck in a world of sin. Inherited guilt. Inherited guilt, yeah. Yeah, so inherited guilt, original sin. Um, and so what I want to... I, I can't remember if I have it covered in next week. I'll have to go over my notes again, obviously, before I teach. Um, but something that I think is really important to, to clarify with this is our condition, yes, it is something that we carry through into this world through birth, right? As soon as we are born, we are by nature children of wrath. Um, and so then we are deserving of death. Even Paul talks about in the book of Romans how death reigned from Adam to Noah even before there's uh, any kind of law to like set in stone what the rules are. There is still sin because there is still death. You can tell uh, one is not without the other. Um, but something that I want to talk about a little bit is that idea of inherited guilt. Um, I think... That terminology, although it is not wrong, it's one that can often in our minds get twisted a little bit, I think. Um, again, the terminology isn't wrong, but I want to make sure that we're clear on our understanding of what the inherited guilt actually means. And so one of the words that I would use, uh, at least in my own mind, and hopefully it helps for you guys too, is it is an inherited condition. Um, and so I, it might sound like I'm trying to lighten the load, but let me explain. Um, what I mean by that is through Adam's sin, we see in Romans chapter, I believe it is 5, verses 12 to 19, um, Paul talks about how sin entered the world uh, through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so we see there in verse 12 that yes, sin entered the world through Adam. Uh, but that inherited guilt is not the idea that we, we as humans now are not guilty of the sin of eating from the tree that God commanded us not or commanded humankind not to. So Adam's guilt of eating, choosing to do that, Adam and Eve, we are not specifically carriers of that original choice. However, Adam is the mold of the type to come, the rest of humanity, right? And so that choice and the guilt of sin as a general thing is then something that is carried to us. 
right? So we are guilty. We are counted as guilty because of the choice that he made, but we are not counted, like, if you had a ledger of all the things that you have done wrong, eating that fruit would not be on that list. But we would be guilty of sin nonetheless, right? Before anything is even on our ledger, we would be deemed as guilty. Does that make sense? Is there questions about that? I, I want to make sure that we're clear on those things and that if there's questions, we actually talk about that. I will say, I know what it's like to get asked questions when in the middle of something like this. Often if you get put into that space, it's like everything goes blank. Forget about it. You can't think of anything. So if you're in that seat and you come up with questions later, feel free. I'm willing to talk about it later too. Just because we're here now doesn't mean that I'm not willing to talk about it after. I get it. Questions are hard to come up with on the spot, but I want to open it in case there is. I have one, but it probably would be on a bit of a tangent. <clears throat> Go for it and we'll see. If we're born sinful before we actually do anything, what would happen to a child who dies before they are old enough to even comprehend the concept of Christianity or anything? Right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, as a starting point, I think that's where the idea that we are, like, before anything could be on our ledger, if you can imagine that, we would be guilty of sin regardless of if we had committed it because of what Adam has done. So that carries. Um, however, I think that there is passages. Andrew probably has them memorized better than I do because he's probably been asked this question more times than I have in my life. Um, but there is passages that allude to um, the idea that if you are innocent in the sense of not understanding the difference between good and evil, so at an age where you don't understand those things yet, that there may be uh, grace from God in those circumstances. So for children, for example, um, that's where uh, theologians will go to look at those passages. One of them is with the nation of Israel. Uh, before they enter the promised land, uh, there is a generation that had sinned and God waits till that generation dies out. But God allows the children of that generation to enter in because they did not know right from wrong. Right? So he allows that grace to enter into the promised land. And the, the imagery of Israel in the promised land is often, uh, or not often, it is a mosaic. It's an image of what is to come through Christ and the church. So I think that there's that verse or that passage. Uh, you probably know it off by heart. What passage is it? Yeah, it's in Deuteronomy 1 when uh, God is talking about just what you said the penalty for them. Uh, and yeah, that whole generation, you're going to die in the desert, you don't get the promised land. But then it says in verse 39, And as for your little ones, which means children, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess, possess it. So God is saying to that generation, your little ones that are included here, they have no concept of good or evil. So I'm not holding them accountable for what you guys did. They're going to be allowed to go in. Um, so some, some people look at that as, okay, there seems to be this kind of grace given to children. Again, there's no age given. There's been much debate over like, well, where's the cutoff, right? Is it five? Is it seven? The Bible never says anything like that. And then Romans 1 is the other passage where it says that... Um, you know, the attributes of God, his divine power have been seen in creation so that men are without excuse. And I've heard it explained, but children have an excuse. 
because they are unable to comprehend that there is a God when you're six months old. You can't look at the sky and go, there must be a God. They don't have any kind of, those kind of mental faculties. So I, I think there's an amount of grace given to children or even I've heard, you know, severely mentally handicapped people who are like, have no knowledge of good or evil. But the tricky part is that the Bible doesn't say like, oh, and it's five years old. That's the cutoff. We're not, we're not ever told. It's just, but I, I will say this, like I have three kids and man, early on, I could see, yeah, you already know good and evil, <laughs> right? By four or five years or whatever, right? So, but I know people who have lost babies or you, or you have miscarriages or your one-year-old dies. And I think we can cling to God's grace going, okay, there seems to be this age of innocence, even though we, it's not that they're born without sin, yeah. but God in his grace seems to go, okay, you haven't had an opportunity to know good or evil yet. I'm going to show you grace. Yeah. yeah. And yet somehow that doesn't carry to adults because we are all uh, responsible for our actions. Paul talks about that in Romans. Um, but along the lines of what Andrew is speaking, and, and we'll, get, we'll go more into detail next week, uh, but Romans chapter 7 has been blowing my mind with how Paul talks about sin and how, uh, so starting in verse 7, uh, he like all through chapter five, six, and seven, really, you have to you have to see all of them. So I suggest that you go and read it because I, I don't know. For me, it kind of not shook it, but it, it's fleshing out my understanding of what sin is and and some of these ideas. And Paul talks in chapter seven, verse seven, and on about how he would not have known what it was to covet if he had not been told, "Do not covet by the law," right? And so the idea of children before they are raised to understand these things, not understanding it, um, again, it's not that they are not guilty of sin. Our ledger reads guilty regardless of what, how long we have lived. Um, but there does appear, like Andrew said, to be that grace that God extends to, to a certain age category. Even the story of David when his child dies uh, and the rejoicing that he does that he will be with him again. Um, it, it seems hard to believe that scripture would put that kind of hope there and leave it there and have it not be something that is grounded in anything, um, especially because we know that scripture is inerrant and, and is completely consistent with itself. Um, hopefully that answers your question at least somewhat. <laughs> Any follow-ups with that? Any before we move on? Because it is a good question. I don't want to... All right, so as we move forward from this point, um, you guys are probably all familiar with passages uh, where the Bible talks about us having a sin nature. All of the Old Testament sets up a story about how, or tells a story of how after Adam and Eve, countless generations are, are in relationship with God, where God makes a covenant with his people and his people are not faithful, whether it's the prophets like uh, any of the prophets calling out all of Israel for being unfaithful, whether it's right after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and is like, hey, Israelites, I'm paraphrasing very loosely, I recognize, but hey, Israelites, do not make any idols. Goes back up, what's the first thing they do? They make an idol to a God that isn't Yahweh. Like, we are naturally bent towards sin. Um, our culture often tries to teach that people are, are naturally good. Like, if, if you're left to it, you'd probably make the right call, the right decision. 
Um, and I think the reason people stand on that ground is because we do see non-Christians making decisions that aren't horrendous, right? Um, where people are living out lives that might not, on a surface level or on a worldly scale, look like they're all that evil. Um, but it's, it, it is also important to understand that those people, even though on a worldly scale they might look like they haven't tipped it in, in poor favor, that God already counts them as guilty. And even if you were to talk to that person and get to know them, you would know the sins that they have committed. You would know the things that have been done to them that are wrong, right? And so no one escapes this without sin. It is our natural condition. Um, one of the things that is, is, yeah, most helpful is, I think, to think of it how sin spreads like a virus or like a cancer. Um, oftentimes if someone is infected with cancer, it doesn't just stay in that one area, right? It continues to move or grow at least, right? Uh, and becomes more and more of a problem until death. And, and sin is very, very similar. Um, and so again, I'm not going to give away tons because otherwise we won't need to be here next week. Um, but yeah, that is our human condition is that we are sinful and need of a savior. We, our works are nothing. We are unable to be righteous on our own. So even if you look at the Old Testament, God had to provide ways so that his people could be in communion with him or in relationship with him in his presence. Without those things that God had provided, the people would have been like every other people, unable to be in communion with God. Um, and so I was thinking about this as I was preparing to talk about how we are horrible human beings and we are <laughs> sinful and horrendous. Uh, and I couldn't leave myself to leave it on that note and be like, hey, we're going to talk about sin next week, and then hopefully God allows us to make it to the next week. Um, I never want to assume that everyone has had the gospel sink in. Um, and so I, what I wanted to do as a, a final closing thing, even though it isn't the week that we're talking about this per se, is I wanted to, to tell you guys about the gospel. Uh, because it can feel really heavy uh, and is and should be really heavy to hear about how horrible we are. And even if you reflect on your life and think of the wrong that you have done against God and the wrong that you have done against other people, um, it might even bring some of us to anxious like feelings and tendencies to think about all the stuff that we've done. Um, and so I don't want to just leave us there because that's not where God has left us. Uh, so through God's eternal grace, he has provided a way for us to be in right relationship with him. Uh, Romans 10, uh, verse 9, I think it is, if I remember correctly. Uh, so Jesus, the, the perfect son of God, we talked about this with the Trinity. Jesus, who is God, the perfect son of God, came to earth, lived the perfect life without sin that you and I cannot live so that he would be the blameless sacrifice when he died on the cross willingly to take on the weight of the punishment of our sin so that if we confess with our mouth, as Paul says here, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that he continues to reign, you will be saved. And so even though we live in a broken world, even though we are sinful, and even if we do believe we will continue to sin, I'm sure you guys have seen that in your own lives if you're a follower of Christ, but you are counted as saved. All you must do is believe that Christ is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done. It is through faith that you are saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if you haven't made that decision, um, I want to put that on the table for you. 
is to allow you guys to recognize what Christ has done for you so that while you were still sinners, while we were still considered enemies of God, right? Well, as I said, we'll flesh this out next week, but as we were considered sinful enemies of God, he loved us enough to send his son for us so that we would be counted as righteous through his son. Um, and all you must do to gain access to eternal life and life in God and, and know God is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. All right. So that's uh, our evening. But before we close, I just want to kind of open it up again one last time. As you guys have had time to think about it, I know I get kind of rambly. I get excited about ideas. Um, and so I want to just open it up, give a little bit of space. If there's silence for a bit, that's okay. But if there's any questions, comments, anything, I'd like to give space for that. So you said um, that even if you don't sin, then you'll still have that inherited guilt from Adam? Yeah. So do you think Jesus had that? Do I think that Jesus had the inherited sin nature? Yeah. Or the inherited guilt? I don't know. Whatever you call that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, God... Uh, in his wisdom, allowed Jesus to be perfectly God and perfectly man at the same time. So I would believe for, that, for, for Jesus to have actually completed the work on the cross fully, yes, he would have had to be fully man, which means that he would have been born into that, but yet he lived without sin, right? So then the, that condition couldn't be held to him. Does that make sense? I don't know. why the virgin birth is so important, because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. And when it talks, like Paul talks about, yeah. that sin comes through Adam. Yeah. So I think this is one of the reasons why you have to believe in the virgin birth. Because uh, we're not told that sin comes through Eve. Sin comes through Adam. Yeah. The father, right? The man. Yeah. And so I would say, no, Jesus probably didn't, not probably, he didn't have a sin nature because he didn't have an earthly father. So it wasn't kind of passed down. That's cool. Uh, which is why we can say, yeah, he's perfect. Yeah. And he never sinned. He was, which is interesting because there's there are some Christians who are like, ah, oh, the virgin birth is too miraculous. I'm like, well, if you take that away, yeah. Then, yeah. 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 No, that's a very fair and good point. I would agree with that. I think, yeah. So what I'll do is I'm going to close in prayer. Um, next week, come back. We're going to talk about something heavy, sin. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be here again next week teaching on sin. We're going to flesh out some of those ideas uh, a little bit more. So I want to welcome you guys to come. Uh, it'll be nice and heavy, so that'll be good. Uh, but yeah, I want to just close in some prayer, uh, and then we can go from there. So, Father, thank you for today. Thank you uh, so much that we get to come and learn about who you are and who we are through what you have done. Um, Father, I, wanna, I just want to thank you for everyone that's here. Um, I don't know where everybody's at in their walk with you or in their journey towards you. But Father, I just want to thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us through your Son and that you've welcomed us back into this family, into this church, so that we can be a part of the bride of Christ and image you. 
Father, I pray that as we go out and do that, as male and female, that you would help us to do that well in a way that is honoring to you and in a way that people would look at and, and praise you for, that you would be glorified through our actions uh, and, and that we would not become boastful of them or prideful, but that we would recognize that it's only because of your son Jesus that we can even do any of those things to bring you glory. Uh, so yeah, thank you again for tonight. I want to pray that if there was anything said that shouldn't have been said or anything said wrongly, that it would fall on dead ears and wouldn't be remembered. Uh, but Lord, I, I want to thank you that you are also clear through your word and that you can speak to us through uh, teaching and, and even through weak vessels like Andrew and myself. So yeah, thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.